You can take your Bibles and turn, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 2. I know we actually looked at verse 5 last Sunday. We did a message, a, a, a Sunday message on verse 5. And we actually did a Sunday message or Wednesday message a week ago on verse 5 too. Remember we talked about that, 1 Timothy 2.5. And Job wanted an, a mediator and so forth and, and God's plan to have a mediator. Well, last Sunday or yes, you know, just a few days ago, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper and talk about how he's, the first study was really on what it means to have a mediator, what it means for Jesus to be our mediator. The second one was how he is the only mediator and why so many religions are false because they believe there's another way to God or that they can have another mediator besides Jesus. And that's just untrue. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, last time and the time before we talked about verse 5, you remember in Job, it enters in this kind of court-like situation where he starts to justify himself. He feels that, man, I'm being falsely accused. I have lost everything. I've lost my kids. They've all been killed. I've got boils head to toe. I've lost my resources, my business. I lost my wife's heart. She's told me to curse God and kill myself. I've lost my friends, everything. And they're all saying, I must have done something really evil. Yet God said that Job was the most righteous man on the earth. So remember, he got in his quandary. He tried to, started to try to defend himself because he knew that he wasn't living more wickedly than anybody he knew, you know? Yet he's suffering more than anybody he's ever known. And he starts to justify himself, but do you remember he over-justified himself? Do you remember that? Because he started coming off as though he didn't deserve anything, when really we all deserve wrath, right? We all deserve punishment. And he was, began to get upset with the predicament that he was in, and he withheld his tongue. He refused to curse God and die, yet he was in a really tough situation. So he began to justify himself to a degree. And he said, I wish I could, you know, go to court with God, basically. But then he says, but if there were a thousand things that God had got against me in court, I would just fall flat on my face. I'd lose every single one of them because he'd win in every case. He knew that. But then you remember as we went through the chapter a little further, he said, I wish there was an umpire. I wish there was a mediator who could put his hand on me and put his hand on God and bring the two of us together. Well, <laughs> if there was a mediator to mediate between him and God at that point, and redemption would have never been, our salvation never would have been paid for, if that mediator didn't give his life for him, he wouldn't have been any better, amen, because he'd still be in his sin. But the good news is we do have a mediator, amen, and that mediator paid for our sins. So those thousand things that Job would have lost uh, the battle in court over and all the other things he had done wrong, he'd have been condemned for. But thankfully, he said another place in Job, I know that my redeemer, the mediator is a redeemer too. He lives, right? And after I die, he said, he, would, he spoke of his resurrection, that I'll see him with my eyes in the flesh. That's heavy, man, especially when you think of the book of Job being written around the time of Genesis was written. Many scholars believe it was written before the book of Genesis. We really can't know. But it's pre-temple. It's pre, uh, there's no, he's not a descendant. We don't see that he's a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know. But God's working with him, and, and we believe, and we understand that the Lord loves all people, amen. And there were people that were Gentiles, before God called Abraham, and even after God called Abraham, he used Jonah and others, to prophets, to speak to the nations, to warn them. But God had a plan. It says in the book of Acts chapter 17 that the Lord created people, and he determined where they would live and their habitations, that they might grope after God, they might seek after him and find him, amen, and that he winked at things, King James. He overlooked things, I believe the NASB that they had done in the past. Not that he wasn't going to be just and deal with sin, but he just didn't wipe out the entire planet. He promised us that he, despite man's sin, that he wouldn't flood the earth again. And so this plan that God had from the past, the ages past, and not just from ages past, but before the foundation of the world, 
was already predetermined by God, amen? His son, the Lord Jesus Christ, he had predetermined that he would send him into the world uh, for, to die for the sins of mankind, of humanity, amen? So it's quite interesting that Job cries out for this mediator, but he says, my redeemer lives. He has these brilliant bursts of light that are just precious. And then in chapter two, verse five, we get to see that the answer to his prayer and the prayers of so many uh, says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And I tried to explain to you what I believe is a lot of the background going on with not just Judaism that he's dealing with in the first chapter and elsewhere, but Gnosticism, at least incipient Gnosticism. By the way, for all the things we've talked about regarding Gnosticism in 1 Timothy, keep in mind he's writing to Timothy who is what? Establishing elders at Ephesus. Where did John pastor when he wrote first and second and, you know, John third in Ephesus? And he was dealing with Gnosticism. It's quite interesting. But here we see there's one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ, Jesus. And I've emphasized to you that, you know, when I, I love to memorize scripture. And when I was a new Christian, I was memorizing all the one-way scriptures. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, you know what's that? Uh, John 14, 6, you know. Acts 4, 12, you know, there's only one name under heaven given among men, boy, right? You must be saved, right? Salvation only in whose name? Jesus, you know. And I am the door. Come some of the way, your thief, Robert. That was John uh, 9 or 10, 9, 10. And of course, 1 Timothy 2, 5, you know, there's one meeting between God and God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And when I read that and, and memorize that as a young new Christian, I love to memorize scriptures where Jesus is God because I was studying with the JWs and Mormons. I didn't know any Christians. And I was realizing, wow, they're totally off. And I would quote scriptures where Jesus is God. And when it said the man, Christ Jesus, now I knew God became a man in the person of Jesus, but I, I thought, why is Paul emphasizing his humanity there? And I believe he's emphasizing him, not just because he's dealing with Gnostics who denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, and that could be in his mind, at least in the Holy Spirit's mind through him, but to be our mediator, he is God and man, Right? He represents humanity. Adam was the head of our race, amen? And he blew it big time. He represented us, and he fell big time. And we read about that in Genesis chapter 3. Even though God made everything good, he made Adam, he said when he made man, he's very good. And then in chapter 3, he falls, has a huge fall. And his sinful nature was passed on. We, he committed the original sin for humanity, right? And then his sinful nature was passed on to all of humanity. The Bible says we're born in sin. Now, we don't believe that we are guilty of his sin because the scriptures are really clear. You know, don't use this proverb anymore among you in Ezekiel 18 that the sins of, don't be saying the, the, the children's teeth are set at edge because of the sins of their parents. Amen? Amen? He's saying, no, that's not my heart. And they were saying, God's messed up. God's wrong. God's wrong because he's holding us accountable for the sins of our parents when they were in, in Babylon, in exile. Oh, it must be our, our parents. And we're being held accountable. God's not right. God's saying, no, that's not true. That's not what you're accountable. You will die because of your own sin, he says. And I'm not holding you accountable for their sin, and I have no pleasure in the, your death. But rather that you repent, turn, and live, right? That's my heart. But we did inherit what? A sinful nature. The stain of sin sticks with us. And anybody ever doubts that? And they're at this fellowship sometime, they go, I don't know if there's a sinful nature that's communicated. I just say, well, let's sign you up for nursery for about six months. And you take care of all little babies. In the book of Job, since we were there earlier, it says the babies come forth from the womb speaking lies. David said he was conceived in sin, amen. And even after the flood, the Lord says that he knew that the thoughts and the inclinations of their hearts is our evil continually. It's just not a coincidence. We have a fallen nature. And if you're honest, you know, even as a Christian, you have to keep that old man down, amen, and walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. So there's a sin problem. And even before the temple is erected, Job and other nations are realizing there needs to be a payment for sin. 
In fact, Job, if you read the first couple chapters, he was sacrificing like huge bulls for his kids, lest they were having fun and any of them cursed God. He's sacrificing these big bullocks. He loved his kids, by the way. He loved his kids to sacrifice those big bullocks. If you're a parent and you have children, how much more? That's a lot of work. Could you imagine sacrificing a huge bull over and over again, morning after morning for your kids? What, we have no excuse, parents, if we're not pointing our children to Jesus, the ultimate and final sacrifice, amen, who gave his life for us and our children, amen? I mean, think of what Job had to go through. He loved his kids that much. It's important, very important, that you point your children to Jesus by the way you live your life, amen? By the way you treat other people, by the way you talk to them, by the way you lovingly and prayerfully discipline them, and the way you teach them and bring them up in the Lord, amen? It's huge. Be thankful. You don't have to sacrifice these huge bullocks. Now, Job's friends kept accusing him of just being this rotten sinner. Must be you, man. To one degree or another, they're all pretty much doing it. The youngest guy, he was probably the tamest. And by the end, Job was basically exonerated by the Lord. He still said, I repent in dust and ashes. He still had issues to deal with, but he hadn't sinned on that, but like they did, you know? But guess what the Lord said to him? In Job 42, verses 7 and 8, the Lord said to Eliphaz, not to Job, but to his friends, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Therefore, take unto you seven bullocks and seven rams and offer up for yourself a burnt offering, lest I deal with you after your folly. Now, this is interesting. We're talking about God's wrath, We're talking about justice. We're talking about how God is a holy and righteous God. It's a reality. We know deep down when we blow it, we feel guilty. And we also know that if we were dealt with according to our sins, none of us would be here right now. How many know if you were dealt with according to your folly, you'd be in big trouble? The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but when Adam and Eve sinned, it says the wage of sin was what? Death, remember that? Then death came into the world. We all deserve death. In fact, I frequently say to people when I'm witnessing to them and sharing the gospel with them, I point out some kind of situation that could happen right before our eyes. I just did this recently. You just say, hey, what if this happened? And I give them a scenario and I point to a person and say somebody came in, like for instance, with a bat and bludgeoned that person, left them bleeding and just took all their stuff. And you and I were witnesses and we were called to court and we told the judge, we saw eyewitnesses, this person was bludgeoned with a bat, brains beat practically out, and then this person left and we were eyewitnesses. And the judge said, okay, yeah, I believe you. But the guy can go and he's free. What would each of us say? We would say that judge was what? Crooked, corrupt, right? A bad judge, an evil judge. Well, God is, yeah, John, Jonathan. Well, you live there, bro. So, um, but God isn't wicked. God is an unjust judge. And we have all kinds of sins we piled up. And being righteous and holy and just, he must punish sin. Okay, that's a reality. And here, Job's friends to avert the wrath that they deserve for bearing false witness, not only about Job, but about God. And they offered up sacrifice to appease or to uh, propitiate for their sins. Of course, those sacrifices, the Bible says, could never take away sins. They were all what? What do we call it? They were coverings. They covered the sin because they were types or pictures or foreshadowing of the only sacrifice that ultimately could take away sin. The Bible speaks of the word for atonement in the Old Testament sometimes means covering. And it doesn't take, it's like we can cover our trash. How many of you cover your trash? Otherwise you get maggots or you get whatever, right? But, it's, but you're just waiting and it gets full. You're trying to keep the lid on and smash it down, but you can't wait for the trash man to come and take it away, amen? Well, Jesus... His blood doesn't just cover our sins. His blood takes away our sins, amen? amen. How many are grateful for that? Because now he removes the stench too, amen? Removes the guilt. How many are you thankful for that? I am. Now it's interesting because uh, right here in verse six now, and it's a glorious verse, guys. I love this. I couldn't wait to get to verse six. In fact, we'll probably take a little while uh, because we're gonna look at different aspects of verse six in the next couple weeks or so. 
It says of this one mediator between God and man that he what? Gave himself as a what? He gave himself as a ransom for who? All? Does your version say a few? Does your version say for the elect? Or does it say for all? Oh, okay. Yeah, mine too. So in verse 6, he says he gave himself a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. Aren't you glad he gave himself a ransom for you and for all? And aren't you glad you can know that he died for you and not wonder if you were one of the people he died for? Just hope it's true. But we can have confidence and assurance that Jesus died for us. And I don't want to talk about the all in this study. We'll do that another time while we're in verse 6 and we'll get into who he died for. But I want to talk more about the fact that he's our ransom, man. That he gave himself as a ransom for us. Amen? And what does that mean? What does it mean he gave himself as a ransom? Verse 6. And that's why verse 5 and 6 together are so important. Who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. God's timing is always perfect. Amen? Amen? If you're praying and seeking God, you know... Trust him for his timing in your life. How many realize sometimes you try to get ahead of God and things get messed up, right? Or sometimes you just don't do what God wills and you procrastinate and you get things get messed up in your life. Okay? God's timing is perfect. Seek to walk in his timing, but his timing for redemption uh, was perfect and for the ransom to be paid. Now, it's really interesting here because uh, why would he give himself as a ransom? You know, Adam's sin spread to humanity. Uh, what is a ransom, by the way? A ransom is a payment that is made to set someone free, for instance, from like a prison. Okay? There are different aspects of a ransom. A ransom is a payment. Uh, Numbers chapter 3, verse 46. But sometimes when the Bible uses the term ransom, it speaks of being set free. Be captives being set free. So you might say, oh, there was a ransom. But, it won't, but no one's set free yet. It's just the ransom was paid. Then you might see somebody set free and say, ah, they were ransomed. You can use the same word for the payment and for the person being set free. It's important to understand that distinction as a student of Scripture, theologically speaking, so you understand the difference between salvation provided and salvation applied. Because sometimes people conflate the two, and they think when Jesus died on the cross, people are automatically saved. Okay. You weren't automatically saved right when Jesus died on the cross. Otherwise, when someone witnessed to you, they probably wouldn't have encouraged you to get saved. Amen? And how to be saved. They'd say, oh, by the way, you're probably already saved. Or you might be already saved. No, but we tell people they need to get saved. So, but who, now here's the question. There's a ransom that's paid, but who is the ransom paid to? Think about that. Do you know who the ransom is paid to? Because there's been different theories through church history. We know the ransom was paid, though, by Jesus. Okay? Uh, the scriptures are very, very clear. In fact, uh, we know that we couldn't pay the ransom. I told you in another study in Luke, in a, what is it, Psalm, I have it down here, 49, 7, 8. No one can ransom his brother. You can't, man. The soul is costly. We cannot save each other. I tell that to people when I'm witnessing to them a lot of times too because I want them to know, hey, I'm in the same boat you are. I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by God. I need to be saved by God's grace, and I was. But I let them know I can't die for you. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And then they, they agree with that. They'll agree with that you're a sinner. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You couldn't. Well, you couldn't pay for me either though. Then I put them in the same boat. You're a sinner. Who could pay for our sins? You know? And that's why we need the God-man. That's why God became a man. Amen? Because he would represent us in, as a second Adam, and the, it's also called the last Adam. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Romans chapter 5. Now, listen to this. The scriptures are really clear. Luke 4, 18. When Jesus came and started his ministry, we read this. He has sent me, Jesus said. And this is after he went into, you know, he, he, uh, he went to be tempted by the devil and so forth in the wilderness for, you know, the period of trial, 40 days, where Adam and Eve lost, failed in the garden with everything, and they fell flat on their face. He was tempted three times, and he passed with flying colors in the, in the desert, in the wilderness. And then he came, and he opened a scroll of Isaiah, right? And when he opened Isaiah, he proclaimed himself as the Messiah. 
And he said, one of the things he said there, and it says the people were astonished. He, he quoted Isaiah, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, those who are held captive, those who are in bondage, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And certainly, we're being held captive by Satan, no doubt about that. The scriptures say in John 8, 34, Jesus says, whoever commits sin is a servant, the doulos of sin. And in verse 44, he said to the same people, the servants of sin, you are of your father, the devil. They belonged to him so much that the Jesus called Satan the Pharisee's father. In 1 Corinthians 5, 5, Paul talks about handing, handing the incestuous man over to Satan and his power for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved in the day of salvation. In 1 Timothy uh, 1, 20, Paul says he handed Hymenaeus and Philetus over to Satan that they might learn not to blaspheme. In 2 Timothy 2.26, we read about sinful men who are, quote, taken captive by the devil at his will. In Romans 6.16, it says, know you, uh, uh, know you uh, that, you, that to whomever you yield yourselves as servants, do lots again there, uh, to obey his servants you are to whom you obey, whether to sin, to death, or of obedience unto righteousness. Wow. And Jesus certainly did come to set us free from Satan. Although I don't believe that that's who the ransom was paid to. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself, likewise, also partook of the same. Even though he's God, he took of our flesh and blood. Why? That through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So Jesus set us free from Satan's power. Amen? Hallelujah to that, you know? If you're a Christian, you are no longer under Satan's dominion, under his, in his kingdom, no longer in the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1, 11 through 13 says he translated us out of, the king, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, amen? So we are now in his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, through the payment that he made. So he set us free from Satan's kingdom. Remember when he rose from the dead and he fell down? I, I, I'm sorry, Jesus rose from the dead. Then he appeared to John on the road. I'm sorry, he appeared to John at Patmos. And John sees him like the sun shining in the noon of day. And John falls on his face, it says, like a dead man. And Jesus laid his right hand on him, it says in verses 17 18, and said, Fear not, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Right? And he said, I am the first and last. Don't fear, I'm the first and last. That's pretty heavy. You say, Don't fear. And the first thing I hear you say is, I'm the first and last. I'm not going to fear. But wait a minute, you're the first and last. But then he follows that up with, I am he that liveth and was dead. I Meaning he's the one that, the first and last, God, is the one who died for him. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And he says, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? He released the souls, the spirits. Well, the scriptures are very, very clear. And I'm, I'm, I'm instead of just saying this in case you haven't heard this before, I might give a few scriptures now that I think about it because uh, it sounds like some strange doctrine, but it was believed by the early church and it's believed by many Christians today. Uh, even the Apostles' Creed, which is around uh, prior to these doctrines before the Roman Catholic Church, uh, is that Jesus descended into Hades. Okay, what does it mean? Does it mean as Calvin taught and as some of the word faith teachers teach that Jesus had to burn in hell for our sins? And he was tormented there, and that's where he paid for sins. Absolutely not. That's not what it's teaching there. Okay? But the Bible says that there is a compartment under the earth called Hades, Hebrew, Sheol. And there's two sections. Remember when the when Old Testament saints died, they didn't go to heaven. When Jesus says, you know, Jesus said, no one yet has ascended to the Father during his ministry. So nobody had ascended to the Father yet before Jesus because people were separated because, from God because of their sin, amen? Their sin was being covered, but it wasn't what? Taken away yet, remember? So what happens? When people die, they would go to the underworld. Remember, King Saul wanted to call Samuel up? Remember that? Not down. And you'll remember when Jesus gave the teaching 
which I don't believe it's a parable, but if it, even if it was, is a parable, it's still communicating spiritual truth that there is Hades, right? And there is paradise. And under the earth, the rich man was taken into Hades, right? Or went to Hades. We don't doesn't even say taken. He just went to Hades. But the poor guy, Lazarus, he was taken by the angels. Remember that? He was taken by the angels, the scriptures tell us, into Abraham's bosom. And they were across from each other. There's a great gulf between the two. And he's in Abraham's bosom. Abraham's a father of faith. It's all the faithful went there. He was the father of our faith. God made the, the covenant with Abraham long before the covenant of Sinai came in the law. He made the covenant that established by faith. And in the hall of faith, you read about these saints that all died in the faith. They would have been in Abraham's bosom along with this poor Lazarus. And the rich man who rejected God didn't want anything to do with the Lord ultimately. When he dies, he goes to Hades and he says, I'm in torment in this flame. He says, Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus over, have him dip his finger in water because there's water over there where Abraham is and Lazarus and have him come and stick his finger on my tongue and, and touch it on my tongue. He wanted some relief. By the way, it's kind of crazy picture there, right? Because remember the, the poor man, he wanted what from the rich man's table? He would compete with the dogs to just get a crumb, just get a little satisfaction. Now it's reversed. And Abraham says, nobody can cross from one side of this gulf to the other. And there's a lot more to that story, but it's kind of interesting because it shows you there was two compartments. Even Abraham wasn't in heaven yet. But what did Jesus say on the earth, say while he was on the earth before he died? He said, I'll give you one sign. One, there's different miracles he did that John says are signs, but there's one that just stood out above all, the else, all else, and that was what? The sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be where? In the heart of the earth. When Jesus died, some teach, and I don't think it's accurate, because even after the resurrection, Jesus said to Mary, stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father after he rose. He didn't go to ascend with the Father when he died. It says he went into the lower parts of the earth. That's why Jesus could say to the thief that died on the cross next to him who repented, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. So he'd be in Abraham's bosom, not in heaven, because Jesus had not yet ascended. And then we read in scripture that when Jesus died for the sins of the world, it says in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So when he was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. When he died, his spirit was still alive. And it says, whereby he went and preached to the spirits that are in prison, who were disobedient in the days of Noah. It doesn't say he preached the gospel to them. It just says he preached the word means to announce in the Greek. It was probably to announce his victory. Because Satan was trying to keep God from the plan of redemption. We don't know exactly what he preached. It's speculative. But we do know this. That we told in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, that he gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, that we you know, might all attain to the unity of faith and so forth, that we're no longer deceived by those who lie in wait to deceive and so forth. But he says right in that same passage, right before that, says he who ascended first what? Descended in the lower parts of the earth to set captivity captive in his train. So the souls that were there who were waiting because their sins had been covered and they were putting faith in the Lord, amen, and faith in the coming Messiah, to whatever degree they understood redemption, we don't, it varied from one man to another. The gospel was preached ahead of time to Abraham. He probably had a lot more insight, especially when he brought Isaac up the mountain, which is a picture of Christ. How much of that we don't understand, but as Jesus said, he longed to see my day and saw it, was glad. So some of them had probably some pretty amazing insight, you know. Others, very little insight. And who knows what they communicated and what they talked about, whether there were Bible studies down there in Sheol or not. We don't know, you know. We talk about, wow, I'd love to see that study that Jesus had with uh, the guys on the road to Emmaus. That'd be amazing. That'd be one of my, that's what I'm looking forward to Bible study wise. I want to see what Jesus types, what he shared with them when he said he shared his resurrection. But who knows what Abraham might've been sharing with those guys. We don't know. The ones he's better down there. Maybe he didn't say anything. I don't know. But I do know this. Jesus, who ascended to the Father first, 
descend in the lower parts of the earth, captivity, free to trade. And we read in chapter 27 of the book of Matthew, when Jesus died on the cross, what was the result of that, man? It says that the veil, which was several inches thick, that separated the people from the Holy of Holies, was torn in two because there was a great earthquake. And the way the temple was configured, it's just ripped. And that was God's way of saying, now you have access into the Holy of Holies. Not just a high priest one time a year. Everybody does. Because now you can come to my presence. And guess, guess what? That's why Jesus was allowed to bring those souls into heaven. Amen? Amen? Because they could be in God's presence. Now are you with me? So, but this all happened because the mediator between us and God, he was torn. Because he became a man and our sinful flesh separated us from God. And the scriptures tell us that he was torn in the veil of his flesh. That veil, a picture of God's holiness, keeping us from, keeping him from man's sin. God became a man and that holiness was torn and he paid for our sins on the cross and every drop of his blood was to pay for our sins so we could be forgiven and now we go through Christ as our one mediator to the Father. That's why he's the only mediator. He's the only one that could pay for our sins. He's the veil that was torn. He's the holy one who became a man. And as a God-man, he was able to tear that veil because the payment for sin, without the shedding of what? Blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, amen? So God had to become a man. So this is all really, really heavy when you think about it. That's why Jesus could say to John, fear not, I am the first and last. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold him alive forevermore and have the keys of death and of Hades. Man, it's amazing. Meaning I'm the one, I'm the mediator. Amen? So it's really amazing when you think about it. And it's, it's amazing to me too because that ransom that we read about, who was that paid to? Some of the church fathers felt that, that, the, that was called the ransom theory because a lot of these scriptures speak of this ransom being paid. But they felt the ransom that was paid, since it was the devil that was holding us captive, that the ransom was paid to the devil. I mean, that's, that was a popular theory. And that what God did is he gave his son and he made the devil think, hey, you could just destroy him. And it was a trick. And the devil took the bait, destroyed Jesus, and destroying him did himself in and took the bait. They called it like bait. And therefore now we could be set free because he took the bait and God gave Jesus as a ransom to pay the devil to let us free. That's not a biblical understanding of the ransom. There's some truth to the fact that he's a ransom for sure that was paid to set us free, amen? And there's also truth that we were held bound by Satan. Those two things are true. But the two don't go together as the ransom is paid to the devil. That's not how that works. Okay? So it's important to understand when we read that he was a ransom for all, what that means. And we're going through scripture verse by verse, right? So I don't think it's just, oh, let's just go over these things and just look at something that might help your life a little bit. This should help your life incredibly. It should make you bow down before God and say, wow, you gave yourself as a ransom to set me free from, when you see what he set you free from, you're even more thankful. Now, guess what? Being held captive by Satan was a consequence of our sin. But when punishment came, yeah, you, you serve Satan, you're serving Satan, but God doesn't have to pay Satan to get you off, out of Satan. Satan's not like an equal God to God. He's a God with a little g. In fact, I've reminded you several times, it's not like the yin and the yang in Taoism and so forth, where there's equal forces against each other. Satan compared, Satan compared to us, the powerful angel, and we, we don't stand a chance. Compared to God, he's a puny little angel. Okay? In fact, when he's bound for a thousand years, doesn't even say God does it. Doesn't say Jesus took him. It says an angel. Just grab him, put him in chains. And when he's judged, it says the people that are there with him when he's cast down, they're going to say, this is the one that made the world like a wilderness, now he's weak like us. He'll be stripped of all his power. <laughs> Can't strip God of all his power. Amen? Amen? Because God is 
love. God is holy and God is all powerful. That's the essence of his being. Satan has power conferred onto him, which is given to him for a little bit of time. That's what blows me away when people become devil worshipers, how stupid it is. And if you're in a devil worship, I love you, but realize how stupid it is because Satan's the kind of, he's the being that says, hey, here's a great plan to rob Fort Knox. Look at this. You rob Fort Knox. Then he calls 911. There's a guy robbing 911. He's not, he's the most uncool dude on the planet. Just being honest with you. He's, he's accused of the brethren. He's, you better get him. That's how he works. The Bible says God is so, God is good, man. God can't be tempted because he's so good. He doesn't tempt anyone. He doesn't want you to fall. That's why this scripture, 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's a lot like 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Little children, I write these things. You don't sin. Don't sin. Don't do it, guys. It'll hurt your life. But if anyone does sin, he says, thank God, you have an advocate with the Father, a defense lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, amen? He is our defense lawyer. Now, we we need a defense lawyer because Satan's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night before the Father. Oh, he takes trips down here like a roaring lion trying to deceive people. But he has all his demons doing that all the time. And he accuses us before the Father. And man, he has a boatload of things against you, against me. He take up things in our past that would just doom us, amen? I remember when I, we, one of the times we went to the Philippines, it was just when their new president, who's not no, no new anymore, hard, super hard on crime, okay? He made, made Trump look like just a mellow dude. He was so hard on crime that people were picking up people in body bags, tagging them. Drug dealers, whoever you suspected, people were getting killed left and right. And it was everybody celebrating. There's a lot of people in prison that probably should have been in prison. And we're going to be there for years before they finally get a trial. Because you could just get accused. Cops would pick you up. A lot of people were. And a lot of bad people were also going to prison too. A lot of streets were being cleaned up. It's a catch-22. Not perfect justice though. And I remember we went and spoke at a prison. Many of our, most of the people in our group. And all these guys. You know what I did? I preached about how. What their situation is like. What the Bible talks about with Hades and the lake of fire. Hades is not the lake of fire. Hades is not Gehenna. Hades is a, is a temporary holding facility like the county jail where you wait until you get your trial and then you're sentenced to the federal penitentiary or to the electric chair or what have you. And when you go to Hades, you await the judgment. And in Revelation 20, I shared with them that there's what's called the great white throne judgment. And it says Hades gives up its dead. All those spirits that are in Hades, all the wicked, they go up for the great white throne judgment. They're resurrected, Revelation chapter 20. And then anybody whose name is not written in the last book of life is thrown alive like a fire. I talked about how Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But I also said, look, you guys, you have a defense lawyer, though. And he's called Jesus Christ the righteous. He's an advocate. And that Greek term, advocate, is used of defense lawyers. And Satan accuses you. But if you come to Christ, if you repent of your sin, and you receive the forgiveness that he's provided through his death on the cross, who paid for all your crimes, you know, because even though you may be innocent here, many of them, most of them weren't, I'm sure. You're not innocent before God. And I don't know what's going to happen to you in the next few years. And it looked bad for a lot of these guys because the new guy, new sheriff in town. Your life's quick. You're going to stand before God. You need to be forgiven. There's a bigger court going on. And I used that. And then I talked about how Jesus is our defense lawyer. And I talked to these guys about how, praise God though, because you know what? The judge, God, he hates the prosecutor. He hates Satan, amen? amen? Not good. And he loves, he loves the defense lawyer because it's his only begotten son, amen? amen? And when Satan accuses us and your trust and your faith is in Christ and you are trusting Jesus, we're told that, you know, no angel or demon, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, amen? amen. Because Jesus pleads for us he, he ever lives, it says, because he's our mediator and our redeemer. So I love verse five and six together. He's our mediator. He's our advocate with the father pleading with him, but he's pleading with him based on verse six because he gave himself as a ransom for all. And if you're putting your trust in him, when he pleads with the father in prayer, he pleads with nail-pierced hands, amen? amen. Nail-scarred brow. 
I believe those scars are still there. In Revelation 5, when John sees him, he's the light of the tribe of Judah, but he also looks as a lamb that had been slain. And his face is more marred than any man's. So it's my conviction. I can't prove it, but the other scars are there. So why does it say those would just disappear? I believe Jesus would be the most beautiful person in the universe for all eternity, not just because of his radiant beauty, because of the essence of who he is, God becoming flesh, but because we'll see what he went through for us for eternity. That blows me away. And he gives us these tasks about just shining the light for him, amen? Loving our neighbor as ourselves. We have easy things to do compared to what he did, amen? Quit making excuses to not obey the Lord. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, amen? And Jesus says, he that loves me, the Father will love him. Wait a minute, I thought, I thought he already loved me. God so loved the world, he gave his only God's son, he sure does. But there's a special relational love that you experience when you walk in the light as he's in the light. In John 14, 15, he talks about disclosing a deeper form of love to you when you walk with him. And we need to walk with the Lord and be obedient and not live lives of sin. And so you have to look at your life. You have to say, hey, when I'm living my life, <laughs> and it talks about redemption, and based on what Jesus did in ransoming us is how we should live our lives. It says you've been bought with a price. First Corinthians, there's the redemption. There's a ransom. You've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6.20. You're not your own. Your bodies belong to God. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. And Paul tells the Corinthians that the body is not made for fornication, you know. And he says drunkards and revilers and extortioners and thieves won't inherit God's kingdom. So I, I hope as a Christian you're living a holy life. You're going to be tested. You're going to be tempted to live wicked, a wicked life. Stay on the straight and narrow, man. Stay close to Jesus, amen. Build that relationship with him. Recognize that he is your life. The Bible says he is your life, amen. There's no life outside of Christ. The Bible says in Colossians 2.10 that we are complete in Christ, amen. We don't need spiritual supplements outside of Christ and his word, amen, and his spirit. We're whole in him. Just grow in him now, amen, and walk in him. But it's interesting because when he gave himself for us to set us free, the Bible says, Jesus said, he that the Son sets free shall be free indeed. And I love it because we're told in Scripture that he substituted himself for us. He's a, the Bible speaks how he gave himself up for, on our behalf. But who was he given as a ransom to? Well, it stopped Satan from attacking us because, no, the ransom wasn't paid to Satan. Does Satan stop attacking you when you become a Christian? No. no. Did we sin against the devil when we were sinning before we were Christians? No. no. Do we sin against the devil at all? No. We sin against God. Who was it that cursed the ground? Who cursed Adam and Eve? Was it the devil? No. It was God. It's his wrath that we deserve. He's the Holy One, amen? He's the one whose wrath we deserve. And this is why it's so profound to me, because he's holy. He can't cease being who he is, perfectly righteous. Holy, holy, holy. He's holy. And therefore, he cannot countenance rebellion against his nature. And, but this is the blow of mine, is that he is also love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And then verses 9 and 10, right after that, because he's love, it says that he is a propitiation, a payment. God sent his son of the world. Christ came as a propitiation for our sins. You can't divorce God being loved from what Jesus did on the cross. And it's because he loves us and we're all lost in Adam. We get saved through faith that comes, that's through Christ, amen? Now, this gets really beautiful when you really look at it because the Bible says that God sent Jesus forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood, okay? So God's very nature, his thrice holy nature, his nature uh, <laughs> demands that he punishes sin because he's holy. He's not like that wicked judge. He has to punish sin. But his nature is also love. So he doesn't want to punish us. It's like, I've got to be righteous. I can't compromise my holiness. It's impossible. I mean, I've got to punish, but I don't want to doom you. I want to save you. What a predicament. 
Not for God, though. Oh, it's a predicament still, but not an unsolvable predicament because there's a way out. And God would not have created us, I'm convinced, in his image, knowing we would fall if there was no way out because he's God. But he knew there was a way out, and that's if he became a man and paid the price for us. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's just incredibly beautiful passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, and the old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God, who reconciled, now look at verse 18. Now all things are from God, who what? Reconciled us to what? Himself, through Christ, and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. Okay? Now when Christ died on the cross... God reconciled us to himself. Notice who needed to be reconciled. We need to be reconciled to God, amen? That was the issue. We're separated from, God says your sins have separated you from me because of our unholiness and our rebellion to him. We were separate from him, alienated from him. We need to be reconciled with him, but he's perfectly holy and we're sinners. How can we be reconciled? He's got to punish the sin, says, you know what? I got to punish sin, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the sin on myself. And I'm going to appease the wrath that you deserve and step in and pay the fine. And my mercy, and in my mercy, I'm going to (laughs) propitiate and suffer the wrath that you deserve. In fact, look at 18 and 19 together. Now these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was what? Now look at verse 19. That God was what? In Christ, what? Reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has, and, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now listen to 1 Corinthians 1.20. It pleased the Father through the blood of Christ's cross to reconcile all things unto himself. Look at verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be what? Sin on our behalf. So that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. Now contrary to some people's teaching, other false teaching, is that Christ became a sinner on the cross. Christ did not become a sinner on the cross. Okay? A lot of theologians, more than you think, teach that actually. That he actually became a sinner. No, he's the sinless Lamb of God. That's why he's called the Lamb of God. Amen? Amen. And he wasn't cursing God on the cross and this rebel. He submitted himself to the Father's plan. Amen? Amen? And here I am, rotten sinner to the core without Jesus. God took my place and the wrath I deserve that should fall on me and took it, took it for me, amen? So that now he took it, so now I can be in him and partake of his righteousness. So that's why it says he became sin, a sin offering on our behalf, that we could become the righteousness of God. Now guess what? He is the beloved son, now we are beloved in him, amen? amen. He's gonna reign forever, right? We're gonna reign with him, amen? amen. He's the heir of all things, now we're joint heirs with him. Amen. We're corporately uh, uh, in Christ. So the blessings that he has, we have. Now there are certain things, incommunicable attributes and things that are the sons alone. Amen. But to be in Christ, you you need to realize what you have now. The Bible says, if God did not, you know, spare his own son for you, how will he not give you all things? Christ is the heir of the universe. He's the creator of all things. Do you realize who you are in Christ? You're not just forgiven, but you're blessed and you are part of the beloved now, amen? Get your brain around that. Now you talk about going from Hades to heaven, amen? All because of Jesus, amen? Amen. Not that you were ever in Hades, but some were. This is just all amazing. Now, the ransom was paid to who? Who was the ransom paid to? Who were we in debt to? God. We owed him righteousness that we never paid. We owed him all kinds of righteousness that we kept back from him. And he owed us something. He owed us wrath. He's going to pay us because he always pays back. But wait, we owe him. We can't pay back. How's that solved? Mercy and grace and judgment and justice all kiss at the cross, man. 
Our debt's paid because Christ paid it. Amen. Amen. He gave his life for us. <laughs> Think about it. And God's debt in needing to make sure he is just and sin is paid for, is paid for on the cross. So God is, it says in Romans, it says he's just and the justifier of the wicked. Wow. By the way, in the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, it says he's just and not the justifier of the wicked. Adds a not there. Joseph added that there. I just talked about Mormonism last Sunday. It was one of the things that came up. So it's on my, I think of that scripture. I think, man, I've got the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And it's just twist because they teach work salvation. Joseph Smith taught you got to marry three women to get exalted into the celestial kingdom. I'll stop talking about Mormonism right now, but <laughs> I'll go off on that, man. That's all just such a lie. Anyway, so he gave himself, it says, as a ransom for all. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it's Jesus said that he came, quote, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not many as opposed to all, but many as opposed to a few. Many meaning all of us, because uh, it's very clear he gave himself as a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2.6. Uh, it's interesting. Acts 20, 28 says the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We're talking about ransom here, guys. Redeemed, being redeemed, Amen. The Bible says in Romans 3.24, it speaks of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I already mentioned 1 Corinthians 6.20, you are bought with a price. Uh, Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14 says we have redemption through his blood. 1 Peter 1.18-19, one of my favorite verses on redemption, says knowing that you were not redeemed or bought or ransomed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. In Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, when we redeemed from the curse of the law, whose curse was on us? Curse everyone who does not continue all things of the law. Verse 10, a few verses before that, God's law condemns us. God condemns we're his curse. But Christ took that curse upon himself. Man, our praises should never stop toward him, amen. And he had promised, you know, that he'd send that redeemer all the way back in Genesis chapter three, verse 15. Now it's interesting because in 1 John, and I mentioned, I alluded to these verses earlier, but it says, he's, in 1 John it says, you know, I write these things that you don't sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And it says, this is important, who is a, a propitiation, that's a payment, See, when you see words like satisfaction, propitiation in theology, they're talking about a payment that must be made to avert wrath in Scripture. Do you understand that? The propitiation is a payment of, of, of you know, the sacrifice is propitiated temporarily with a covering, but Christ actually gave himself for us, where, as I mentioned, he took away our sins and it says in 1 John 2, 2, he's a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of who? The whole world. So be thankful. And then 1 John, I mentioned 4, 8, 9, and 10. Listen to this. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to reap the propitiation for our sins. You want to know what love is? What Jesus did to pay for our sins on the cross? It's not some guy saying, I love you, you know, let me undress you now. That's not love, okay? God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that he gave his only begotten son. Can you imagine people love by just giving, you know? I'm not saying there's not love in a biblical sexual relationship. Obviously, God created that in the confines of the way God created it. But it's interesting. Literally, the word propitiate literally means, quote, to turn aside wrath by means of an offering, okay? Jesus becomes our halasmas. He becomes the offering uh, or the helisterion in uh, the book of Romans. He, an offering that, quote, turns away wrath and that's what the Lord did for us, but it's interesting because people try to propitiate for their own sins by offering up all kinds of stuff, but God says, no, it's not going to work. I have to do it. 
I'm the only one that could satisfy my justice. And that's how awesome our God is. Now, some will say that Jesus' death on the cross saves in of itself. They'll say, well, when Jesus died on the cross, man, that's when you were saved. When Jesus died on the cross, were you saved at that moment? Yes or no? No. No. And they'll say it's a, a redemption accomplished. Well, yeah, redemption, the payment was fully made. Nothing needs to be added to that payment, amen? amen. Absolutely 100% perfect atonement. But you're not saved because he died without faith, without meeting the condition. Because now this is, comes back to what I said at the beginning. This is, and you understand this, okay? A little bit of theology here, but understand. There's a difference between salvation provided and salvation applied. The provision has been made. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, the belief has to come in there. Should not perish, but have eternal life, amen? amen. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, it talks about specifically that the propitiation is through faith. The payment in itself will not save you without faith. In fact, even some of my reformed brothers, if they say, oh no, we were saved when Jesus died on the cross, that's when I got saved. No, you didn't. Because you know what Paul said in Ephesians chapter two about you and me and all of us? Whether you think you were elect or not prior to the cross or, or prior to your salvation, Ephesians 2.3 says this, among them, we too, all, all of us, formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Before the cross, we we're all doomed, except those who put faith in Yahweh. Amen? Their sins were being covered till the Messiah came. And when he died, because they had faith, amen, they were forgiven. But we weren't forgiven right? Until what? Until we came to faith. We were all children of wrath, okay? Uh, just as the rest. It's important to understand this because Paul says, by grace are you saved through what? A little bit right after that, a few verses later. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves give to God, not of works of saints should boast. If there's not faith, it says, it says, you know, in Hebrews chapter four that God had provided for them, but it says, that God's provision was not mixed with faith. What he, what he offered them, the salvation he offered was not mingled with faith and it profited them nothing. So it's important that you understand even though the payment for your sins has been paid for everybody, you have to come to faith in Christ because that's the condition that God set down. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. You must put your trust in what Jesus did for salvation. Remember the Passover lambs that were sacrificed in Israel? The death of the firstborn man of every household is going down. They're going to die unless the Passover lambs are slain by the Jews and the blood is put in the form of a cross and the lintel on the doorpost and the lamb was full, had to be full-grown male like Jesus, had to be without blemish like Jesus. All these are pictures of Jesus. But if they just killed the Passover and said, well, the Passover lamb's killed in our backyard, Dad. We're good. If Dad was wise, he'd say, wait a minute. It's killed, but... Did you apply it to the doorpost yet? Did you put, nah, we're good, dad. We just sacrificed it, man. Sacrifice is done. We're saved. Nope, not until you put that blood on the doorpost. Not until you apply that blood. You have to apply the blood of Christ through faith. God applies it. You trust him. It's passive. You put your trust in him and he applies that blood to your heart. Amen. And the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you and you become born again. You become regenerated at that point. Amen. In fact, uh, W.G.T. Shedd, okay, he's a, a leading reformed writer. I like some of the things he says. And he points out, because some were saying in, in the reform camp, a lot were saying, ah, redemption happens through the cross, and, uh, you know, we're the elect, and when Jesus died, we're just, you know, they, treat, they act as though they're just automatically saved. And he says, nah, that's not how it works. This, uh, Shedd says this, quote, the fact that atonement in and by itself, separate from faith, saves no soul. Christ might have died precisely as he did, but if no one believed in him, he would have died in vain. It is only when the death of Christ has been actually confided in as an atonement that is completely set forth 
as God's propitiation for sin. This sacrifice in itself, apart from us, I'm sorry, apart from its vital appropriation is useless. In fact, Shedd goes on to say, vicarious substitutionary atonement without faith in its is powerless to save. It is not the making of this atonement, but trusting in it that saves the sinner. I word that a little bit differently. It's the atonement that saves us, but not apart from the faith, okay? By faith you are saved, and that's what he's saying basically. He that believes shall be saved. He's quoting Ephesians 2.9 and Mark 16.16. 16. He goes on to write, the making of this atonement merely satisfies the legal claims. And this is all that it does. I wouldn't say it's all that it does. Because it also, whether we believe it or not, it shows forth God's attribute of amazing love toward the sinner. Amen? So it does do more. It doesn't just do nothing apart from faith. It shows God's amazing love. But his point is well taken, though. It doesn't save you until what? You come to faith. The making of this atonement merely satisfies the legal claims. And this is all that it does. He says, if it were made but never imputed and appropriated, it would result in no salvation. You know how we know that's true? Because you are not saved until you come to what? Faith in Christ, amen? We don't say, man, Jesus died for you. You're saved. That would be universalism, right? Or even a limited salvation apart from faith would be a false teaching. Also, we know this too, why? Because in Galatians, Paul tells the church at Galatia, who's trying to keep the law of Moses and turn away from just trusting Christ and following him according to the law of Christ and the new covenant. They're going back to the old covenant, trying to be circumcised and keep Sabbath and stuff like that. And the Lord says, no, no. He warns them, keep on standing fast in the freedom where with Christ has set you free. And don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to the law of Moses. Stay free in Christ. He says, for Christ will profit you nothing if you seek to be circumcised. And you'll be cut off from the Christ and you'll fallen from grace. In other words, the cross doesn't, is not efficacious in your life. It's not effective in your life without you trusting him. That's why you cannot just come to church with your parents if you're a young person or with a boyfriend or girlfriend if you're just here and say, I'm saved, man, because yeah, we're learning about how Jesus died for me. No, you must make sure that you are personally putting trust in what Jesus has done. You make sure, sure personally that you are having the blood of Christ applied to the doorpost of your heart so when the death that you deserve, it passes over you because you've accepted the fact that Christ died on your behalf, amen? Are you with me? Amen. So make sure, a few things you takeaways other than some of the things I've already mentioned from this is is make sure you apply the, <laughs> the blood of Christ's cross to your heart through faith. Amen? Amen? Also, make sure that you are thankful. You need to be thankful. I need to be thankful. Amen? And make sure you're thankful not only for your own salvation, but for the salvation of your, your brothers and sisters on the, around the earth. In fact, listen to Revelation 5, 8, and 9. This is still taking place, but this is the future. And this was given 2,000 years ago almost, this prophecy 1,900 years ago about by the Apostle John through the testimony of Jesus Christ through John on the Isle of Patmos, the book of Revelation. It says, it says that it speaks of the price of the precious blood of Jesus for, quote, that he bought people. There it is. That he bought people for God out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, including the United States. Aren't you grateful for that? Amen. He bought people from everywhere. And that's in Revelation 5. Revelation 7, it says the same thing. A great multitude that no man can number them cleansed from every nation, kindred, people, and tongue. And this was written long before that had happened. The book of Revelation, Apostle John wrote it. And it's all being fulfilled. Just make sure you're one of the cleansed. And make sure you're thankful. But it says he ransomed, or he bought, or he redeemed. So understand this. Sometimes when you see the word ransomed, it's speaking of the price that he paid to set people free. Amen. Other times you see it, it's speaking of its application to those who what? Have accepted the payment and been set free and released. Are you with me? Amen. See how that works? And give glory to God. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31. But by his doing, by his doing, not your own doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's our redeemer. He's our ransom. So that just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When you talk about your salvation to others, don't brag about, man, I'm saved, man. I repented, man. 
and I just did all these wonderful things, and God said, I'll, I'll accept you on my team. You're great. No. Say, I'm a rotten sinner without Jesus. I was doomed apart from him. I could do nothing. He is my redemption, amen? He is my ransom. He paid the price. He, by grace am I saved through faith, through trusting him. Not anything to do with what I've done, amen? I'm simply passive in the sense that I can only trust and receive the free gift. And just as a beggar can't receive a big steak dinner that you might make for him, right? And, and, and say, we went to the park, man, four-course meal. The beggar can't say, man, I'm something special because I ate that meal. Look how wonderful I am. No, he's got to be nothing but thankful, amen? Same with us. But guess what? Just as Jesus died on a cross, just as you made a great big steak meal for a, just a, a, a transient in the park that deserves to be in prison, and you blessed him with that, it's going to do him no good unless he what? Eats. What Jesus did on the cross will do you no good unless you partake of what he did through faith, amen? And lastly, be a witness, man. The Bible says a soul winner is wise. In the book, that's in Proverbs, the book of Daniel, it says that the wise man, the wise, those who win people to Christ will shine like the sun, like the stars forever and ever, amen? Let's be wise, man. We're Jesus' hands and feet. Now we're in Christ, right? We've been redeemed. We're his hands and feet. He's left us here to finish his job, amen, and be witness to the lost. How many of you are actively sharing your faith? I want to challenge you, man. Be thankful for what Jesus has done for you. Give him the glory and not yourself. Redemption is of the Lord, amen? And try to be a witness. Pray God, use me. Pray for divine appointments. I pray for divine appointments and the Lord sits people right next to me sometimes that aren't even supposed to be sitting next to me. And I just share the gospel with them. Or he just puts me in a place. And that's just, he wants to use all of us like that. So pray, God, use me as a witness. I want to shine the light. And then just trip out and behold how he works. Amen? And you can share with people his great love. Because we have the most beautiful news that could ever possibly be. You can't dream up better news than the good news that's already paid. That Jesus already did. That he already provided. Salvation. Amen? Can we all please stand? Praise God. I, man, I usually have 15 or so page notes, 12 to 25 usually, but around 15 is normal.